0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Life as a Nephrologist. I'm your host, Corey Cavanaugh, coming to you from Charlottesville, Virginia. I am pleased to welcome you to listening to Dr. Eric Wallace, uh, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He serves as the Medical Director of Telemedicine and is the Co-Director of Home Dialysis Program, Co-Director of the Faberies and Other Rare Genetic Diseases Clinic at UAB. So uh, Dr. Wallace, welcome. So part of uh, the reason I'm, I'm so excited to interview is is what we're faced with uh, currently is, is just this flood of COVID and this, this flood of telehealth that we all have to get accustomed to very rapidly. And as someone who is uh, one of the foremost experts, at least in my view, uh of of this sort of medicine Uh, i'm anxious to talk with you and get some of your some of your takes on this so welcome
1: oh well i appreciate you having me
0: so uh before we started uh the broadcast we were just talking casually about some of the practical aspects and i'll just share sort of my experience which you you've echoed in that conversation or already touched on but uh i i never had to do telehealth before, Um, in my training and early in my career, it was that thing we talked about that, you know, wouldn't that be nice to do more of, to give our patients an opportunity. But, um, one of the aspects, uh, trying to, to get to is reach patients in their home. And so as, you know, as someone who's really led the way, uh, on this, can you, Tell us a little bit about some of the challenges or some of the, the, the obstacles that you've experienced um, with this.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Now, w- what we were talking about was, you know, when I was, um, so I guess I graduated from Vanderbilt University uh, uh, for fellowship in 2012, and it was really about six months after that that I realized in doing rare genetic kidney disease and home dialysis that that all of my patients were driving hours to see me for my 15 minute visit. Um, you know, they'd wait in the rating room for for two hours. They'd see me for my 15 minute visit, and then they'd leave. And you know, in home dialysis, they were doing that once a month. And so, you know, I I, I told them very quickly, you know, it's probably about six months in that you know we could do this better over telehealth, and I was going to make their lives better. And at the same time, I was doing basic science uh, research with peritoneal membranes and peritoneal fibrosis, um, actually looking at glucose transporters on the peritoneal membrane. And I remember that all of my patients, I had said telehealth once, and yes, my patients would participate in my basic science uh, endeavors, but they never asked me about it. So they'd give me their spent peritoneal dialysate. And they, they didn't ask me about it, but every single month They would ask me about the telehealth. They'd be like, where's the telehealth? Where's the telehealth? And so finally, you know, it it was them that made me keep going because honestly, there were so many barriers. And to give you an idea of barriers, I mean, we stood up telehealth in no time, um, or at least people think we stood it up in no time. um, But it was all because of all the work that we'd done previously. So in dialysis, it took me two and a half years of regulatory to actually get one person seen. Wow. Um, and this was not about, you know, first of all, there was no billing. So I had to apply for a grant to get that, that bill. Um, secondly, there were issues because it was, I needed a grant. I had to have some sort of thing to study. So, and because this was between, uh, uh my dialysis unit and UAB and a third site. So I had my patients go to the County health departments. Uh, there were three IRBs to fill out. Um, and then there was legal between the dialysis, I mean, it was just a nightmare oh to get goodness. it up and running. So finally, you know, when we were deciding we had the grant, you know, ready to go, I could have done telehealth in the patient's home or I could have done it, I mean, pretty much anywhere because I didn't care about insurance, you know, by the time it was all said and done. But when I approached the patients that I wanted to participate in the study, which were uh, rural, socioeconomically disadvantaged elderly patients, which were really the hallmark of people who can't do video conferencing. Not one of my patients could have done it. And that's in stark contrast to a a paper that came out from Susie Liu, who um, uh, she's at George Washington University, um, also an expert in telehealth. And, you know, she did a survey of her patients in Washington, and about 98% of them, uh, if I recall, were ready for telehealth. But I had done that same survey in Alabama, and the answer was none of those patients were ready for telehealth. So so I think that 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 was a learning experience for me. So I had to say, well, how are we going to stand this up? Because the home is not going to work. And so the way we did it was it was a lot more work to do. But I I was going, I remember, uh, so there was something called the, first I looked at UAB for anybody who was doing telehealth and couldn't find them. So finally, I had to say, well, I got to find somebody. So I found the Alabama Telemedicine Interest Group. And so they met in Montgomery every single uh, about uh, once a quarter, and there was always four people at that meeting. That was a statewide <laughs> meeting, and there were four people. <laughs> and and it turns out those four people went on to be uh, you know some of the leaders of telehealth in our state. Uh, it, w- it was myself, uh, a guy by the name of Michael Smith, uh, Bart Kelly, who's now the executive director at UAB, and one representative, um, uh, one one Alabama state legislator. Um, and then Lloyd Sermons, who's the, the head of the Southeast Regional Telehealth uh, Center. Anyway, so between Michael Smith, who was the head of the, the Alabama Department of Public Health Distance Learning, they were starting to set up some telehealth equipment in some of their county health departments. And I said, look, I got patients. Why don't I send them there? So right. more regulatory. But we ended up sending them to, to the patients and or to the to the clinics. And there were a lot of advantages to that, which is that um, you know, the first thing was, is that you could get state-of-the-art equipment. The second thing you guaranteed that there was connectivity, um, which, yeah. you know, what we're finding now, and it's what I tell my providers, which is that, you know, on a perfect day in Alabama in the home, seven out of 10 is a perfect day for video conferencing. Um, and if wow. you can get seven out of 10 to, to connect, that's about what the internet infrastructure in Alabama will actually support wow. uh, and much, wow. not to mention tech literacy, uh, socioeconomics, et cetera. So the other thing with home dialysis, since I was really the first in the country to do a, a comprehensive telehealth visit, and this was stethoscope, you know, whole nine yards, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't want anybody looking at me and say I was providing inferior care. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do everything I did in person. I wanted to do it remotely. So I needed labs. I needed a stethoscope and you're just, there's no way you're really going to get a stethoscope into every patient's hands, Right. and have them, I mean, we had patients in Alabama, lots of patients who could not download an app to do video conferencing. I mean, wow. like I thought that, that our video conferencing solution, which at the time required them to download an app, I was like, that's easy enough. Yeah. But it turns out it's not. Um, and it's not because many patients have phones that don't have memory. They don't, they, the phones are old They don't even have memory to put another app on. Not necessarily phone.
0: smartphones.
1: Yeah. Well, some of them are not, are not smartphones. So so this download an app didn't work. So anyway, so in, in, in a medical facility, you don't have to do any of that. And you can guarantee the stethoscope. Um, and and it's, it's really the great equalizer, the, the waiting room, right? So in, in, in this type of scenario, you know, everybody can get to a waiting room, right? But it doesn't require the patient to know anything about technology, right? So, so, it turns out that was our model, and we got three USDA grants uh, and outfitted 65 of 67 counties in Alabama. Now have state of the art telehealth equipment, um, so our patients could go anywhere, get all this done, and they have state of the art equipment. We do the video conference. I mean, it was it, it it worked, but it turns out you know, from a scalability standpoint, the just the scheduling, right? Scheduling became a major problem because. Yeah. when you're scheduling between two institutions now you actually have to schedule between three people which is the physician the nurse on the other side and the patient mm-hmm. and that became i mean it was it took hours to schedule even one visit so but at least it was equitable right so now fast forward and what changed with with covid is that you know nobody wanted to go to to any medical facility right Um, and so everybody wanted to do this at home, even the doctors wanted to do this at home. Um, and so, so lo and behold, there was this initial, I mean, just an amazing amount of frustration. Um, and, and the reason there was an amazing amount of frustration, this is across the board. So I've talked to multiple health systems. They've all, uh, you know, one thing's ubiquitous is that no health system liked their initial choice in video conferencing platforms. Now it turns out that there's only so many platforms. So what you'll find out very quickly is that, that every health system was using something and changed to something else that someone else didn't like. So <laughs> it's just that, but what, what was happening is nobody liked their initial video conferencing platform just because, um, and it probably wasn't the, the conferencing platform's fault. It was the fact they were blaming everything on the app because it's very easy to blame the software. Right. It's, it's a lot harder to blame. Hey, wait a minute. You know, if you look at what has to happen for a video conference, you have to have good upload speed. So it turns out download speed is actually pretty easy to come by because broadband, the definition by the FCC of broadband used to be 10 megabytes down and one megabyte up, which meant that a lot of our country actually had 10 megabytes down and one megabyte up. Um, But they recently changed the definition of broadband to 25 down and three up. But when you look at one megabyte up, right, I mean, one megabyte upload speed Is really not fantastic for video conferencing and it may get you by, but if you have two phones in the same household where a six year old is doing YouTube and you're trying to do video (laughs) conferencing, you have a problem,
0: right? 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 You know,
1: you know, it's just 10 megabytes down and one megabyte up when you split it, is it just you know, the video conferencing is poor, and then when you look at At the access to tech, so it's not just access to broadband, because I think that's become like a catchphrase. So now across the country, you'll see a lot of people using CARES dollars to upgrade fiber and things like that. And everybody's like, oh, we're going to upgrade it to a 100 gigabyte pipe. You're like, I don't need 100 gigabyte. I don't need 100 gigabytes of download speed to do a video conference. It's that patients, even in areas that have broadband, they don't have, they don't have the money to pay for the monthly subscription to access it, right? That's number one. They, if they have it, so in our elderly, we've we've done this study. uh, Actually, I'm working on the publication now, um, which is that the people least likely to do video conference, there's two things that really dictate that have the biggest impact in your ability to do a video. Um, One of them is socioeconomics, whereby Medicaid and charity care patients are half as likely as commercially insured patients to do video conferencing right? So wow. half as likely, right? I mean, I think the the uh, the hazard ratio was uh, 0. 0.46. Um, on the other hand, the other biggest driver of whether or not you're able to do a video conference is elderly. So for every decade over the age of 40, your chances of doing a video conference decrease by 10%. So by the time wow. you get to 70 and 80, you're probably not going to be doing much video conferencing which you know if you look at our patients in the nephrology world you know it's one thing if you're a pediatrician uh you know but if you look at the nephrology world our patients are by and large um they're they're elderly i mean you know, we have a huge amount that that are elderly
0: and then you know throw on top of that they're actually sick that's right uh, good luck
1: that's right and so you know it's 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 just interesting and and i i feel for folks who had to experience this because before with telehealth when I was getting folks interested in telehealth you pick the tech savvy doc the doc that liked technology right that was mm-hmm. that was the doc who did this so they were they were willing to troubleshoot Wi-Fi etc but now every doc had to do it and they you know it turns out that one uh, another learning experience is that docs providers are not tech savvy um so you know yeah. the knowledge just because you know a whole lot about the body, doesn't mean you know anything about technology, uh, and I think that people people kind of mistake tech savvy for I own an iPhone. Well, you just because yeah, you own yeah. an iPhone doesn't mean you know anything about tech. iPhones just work. I mean, my six year old can use an iPhone, but my six year old can't troubleshoot a Wi Fi that's not working. Right. Right. So, right. So it's um. Well,
0: he might. I don't know. Well, yeah. Maybe. That's, 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 <laughs> uh, I guarantee my my your your child. <laughs>
1: But but I don't know. I mean, you know, I think that that's that's been a that's one of the biggest. I think that a lot of telehealth in the home has taken a black eye for many providers, whereas if if it wasn't this rip off a Band-Aid type of uh, scenario, I think we could have done a lot more to mitigate and train providers about reasonable expectations for telehealth. Uh, And we could have done more on staffing up to train patients on how to do that and identify, but, you know, under these conditions, we, we just didn't have that. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that a lot of this continues. I guess the other question is why did we have to do this all at once? Right. You know, telehealth has been around, I mean, so, you know, a lot of remote patient monitoring, you know, it started with the Mercury mission. Um, you know, we had to have a way to monitor astronauts vital signs when they weren't right here. So, you know, then we had this star, star bridge to Armenia. I mean, we've had lots of telehealth projects through the years. You know, in 2003, Skype came along um, and, and made video conferencing much less expensive, still not, not free. And now we have all of these devices in our in our pockets. But why? I guess that, that would be the question is, why was telehealth only just now starting? And it turns out one of the first telehealth project was done by a nephrologist um uh in texas there was the texas telemedicine project and their idea what they did was at that time they had to have they laid t1 lines to different dialysis units uh and at the time t1 lines you know running those to dialysis units i mean that was an expensive project and so what they found was it was too expensive but it was done by a nephrologist i mean we saw the we saw the use very very early on i think that ended in 1990 i mean this was before skype this was before wow. it on your phone i mean this was so we've seen this, but why? Like, why now? And the, the reason that all of this boils down to is that the economics didn't make sense. Um, the frustration didn't make sense, but above all, it was regulatory. I mean, the mm-hmm. regu- You by the time you'd have a doc that just wanted to do the right thing for their patient, right? And the regulatory was such that by the time you got into year one of talking with lawyers and saying why this could and couldn't be done. I mean, you were done, right? And then you say, for what? For the same, for the same, you know, I could eliminate my frustration, not change the system at all, and just do this exactly like I'm doing now. I mean, and I think, unfortunately it's not just, it's not just telehealth that is facing this problem. I think that we have regulated healthcare to a point that nobody wants to change it because it takes such a lift to change anything in a system that is this ingrained. And, and I think that unfortunately, as we put regulatory on things, uh, unfortunately, well, the people who, who put policies in place don't actually go through the same risk benefit analysis that we go through when we're doing procedures. And I think it's assumed that every regulatory thing that's put into place has no risk that it's there to save people, right? But in yeah. essence, the more you know, having a system that is unchangeable is the most risky scenario. Period, and that's what we found right. in COVID. You know, right. when all these, you know, there was a there's an article. I love this article, which it, it came up, and it was saying, look at all during COVID, and it looked at all the, some of the regulations that changed, and one of the ones it made fun of was a. Uh, um, you know, the three ounces, you know, taking a three ounce bottle onto a plane, right? And you'd take a three ounce bottle onto a plane and you thought that somebody had, had, I guess, calculated the exact amount of C4 necessary to blow up a plane. And
0: it <laughs> right, a right. Ounce. There must be something to that three yeah, ounce. But,
1: but now with COVID, because of uh, disinfectant, all of a sudden the three ounces is moot. And so then people, I thought, <laughs> if the three ounces was moot after COVID, but it was so important before COVID that we had to go through all this, Like, why did we put that as, I mean, why was that the regulation, right? And so, same with, you know, same with some of these things with, um, you know, although, for instance, now you can use any video conference, right? Now, uh, you know, that's one of the ones I'm not sure I would have done away with. Uh, There's a lot of things that have to go with cybersecurity that is not HIPAA. Um, But now, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what video conferencing solution you use. So if it doesn't matter now, why did it before, right? Um, You know, the the other things was insurers, right? And this is one of the most upsetting, right, which is that, that now we have plenty of evidence. I mean, so with COVID, docs have struggled through telehealth and are using it. We have survey data. I mean, thousands. We do two thousand video or two thousand telehealth visits a day at UAB, right? And with that amount of volume, we've generated lots of data, specifically on patient satisfaction, um, provider engagement in telehealth. And yes, when you take out connectivity, everybody loves it. Our NPS scores, which are our net promoter score with with telehealth, is is above what in person visits are. So wow. if you if you take the the provider satisfaction, you take patient satisfaction, you also take the data that we now have that that telehealth is not is not just ramping up access with without changing hospitalizations, for instance, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there hasn't been this massive uptick in patients not receiving appropriate care, which is what insurers were kept on using. I mean, it was the fear of, oh, well, now we're gonna have so many people using telehealth. And they're just going to use it as a billing tool, and that's clearly inadequate care because you haven't put a stethoscope on your chest. But we're not seeing that. So why is it that only Tennessee, Colorado, um, I mean, really a handful of other states have made this permanent? Um, You know, we still, you know, in Alabama, where we've done you know tremendous amounts of work with telehealth, and where the inequities in care and geographic disparities in care are, are just tremendous. Our insurers are still giving us this month-to-month coverage. And you say, why? You know, if we were really basing our healthcare on data, right, there's a lot of changes that would have been made, but we are so immutable and so unchangeable, right, that we still haven't right. made them. And, you know, one of the the best ASNs uh, 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 discussions was there was a, about two years ago when we still had in-person ASNs, right? Um, there, was a, there was a there was a meeting. So, yeah, I know, I know. Um, but there was a meeting that that was basically saying, do we need any more randomized control studies on certain things? I mean, if you look at, for instance, antibiotic locks, right, in catheters. I, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think it's something like fourteen randomized control studies. Like, first of all, how fourteen randomized control studies got funded, I have no idea. But we just doing them <laughs> over and over again, and they all came up with the same outcome, which is they reduce they reduce catheter infections, right? And this is right. not the I'm going to treat with an antibiotic block. This is the I'm going to prevent, right? So, so the thing is, is that the question is why, right? I mean, and it comes down to two things, which is that it's either money, right? Or it's regulatory is, is really what drives mm-hmm. it. it's not necessarily data. And and my hope is, is is that population health, you know, as we get into population health, we should be able to use some of that to say, all right, it's going to be the docs that drive this um, because we're the one funding it. If we if we do it, uh, you know, if we do population health right, unfortunately, I think population health is still this. I mean, for a, for a lot of things, at least when you get into the health system, it, it still seems to be this, uh, um, you know, pink elephant. You know, people keep on chasing it, but they don't quite know mm-hmm. what it is, and they think that they're going to institute some sort of level of care with no money. So they say, all right, we have this, this pot of money, but I'm not going to change anything because anything I change is going to cost money. And this argument that if I spend money, I'm going to make it by improving outcomes. They said, yes, but I don't have anything to spend. So, you know, at least some, another thing I've learned with population health is if we're really going to get population health up and running, you almost need, you need the catalyst and that catalyst is, you say, all right, well, we're going to bundle patients. Right. And, but we're going to give you X number of dollars to start because if you have nowhere to start, it's like, it's like having a boulder, but you know, no no muscle to push it. Right. Mm -hmm. You can't. And that's what's happened across the board with population health. I think the people, people that have gotten into population health have basically looked at their population and said, Hey, look, if I do absolutely nothing different, will I make money? And if the answer is yes, then they participate. If the answer is no, they stay fee for service. And so then people say, well, look, population health is great." But what you've actually just done is you've selected for a handful of folks that would have done great no matter what you did.
0: Right, right. So anyway, I digress. So I guess for us, for us mere mortals here on uh, on on <laughs> still face to face, somewhat dependent, um, and we're sort of thrown into this more or less are you know by your estimation what you're seeing going on going through everything i think uh i, I the the landscape of alabama's is, is sounds pretty similar to central virginia where I practice where you know a lot of patients in the appalachian region you know they don't have high speed internet or they don't have access to a smartphone or they don't have a connection that's reliable even over the phone all the time. So, you know, in, in your opinion, are we, are we doing something for the patient that is when we perform just audio check-ins or audio visits? Cause it, it almost feels like, like a, my chart in epic. It's always, it it almost feels like just checking in seeing how you're doing. Um, You know, are we, are there ways we can optimize or there are there techniques that we can make just the the phone call visit uh better or or is it stuck without the the visual too yeah
1: you know if you look it's just the, the way we grade i mean it, just look at what we do primarily right Um, you know, I think Tinsley Harrison said, listen to the patient because they are telling you the diagnosis. And if you look at what we do about 80% of what we do is the history, right? So, you know, in nephrology, a lot of what we could do is actually, I mean, if we have labs, that's the key. So if you have a coordinator, get gets you labs, then a nephrologist, you know, there had been even talk about, for instance, when we talk about population health, about having nephrologists just look at spreadsheets right? I mean, you look at spreadsheets, yeah. you look at, at, at trends at, in creatinines, etc. Um, and you say, can I, can I do things based on lab? So in, as in nephrology, could I do a lot over the phone? The answer is yes, right? Yeah. But if you want to take it, the next grade up would be, uh, you know, you look at all the senses. So we, we use all of our senses when we're doing a physical exam, but the primary mm-hmm. senses are audio and visual, right? In nephrology, we do use smell um, when I smell a, a, a uremic patient, right? There is a smell associated, yeah. so so you can't get that over telehealth. Yeah. We do use touch, but you can use the patient's hand to some extent because not very often am I feeling for large spleens, large livers. Um, you know, I'm feeling for edema. Right. So I have the patient touch demo. Right. And, you know, the next level up there would be diagnostics, you know, peripherals like like stethoscopes. So I guess the first thing is, can you know, what does this look like long term? And it just depends on how do we want to use telehealth? So some people have said, well, maybe telehealth is a triage tool. Right. Which is that I do as much as I can over telehealth first. Because there is no facility involved, so if you look at the real estate, real estate in medicine or medical real estate is probably some of the most expensive because you have, you have the CT scanner. And interestingly enough, if we have it right, this was the the reason why every patient who comes into I'm sure this is like a I hope I don't offend people, but this is like a countrywide joke, right? Which is that you go into the ER, you get a CT head, right? So why do you get a (laughs) CT head? Well, because if you have a CT and you don't use it and you miss something, right? <laughs> Air goes right. But in telehealth, you can actually reduce the cost of care just because, for instance, let's say strep throat. Do people with strep throat need a strep test? Well, the answer is no. If you use Centaur criteria, there are reasons that we can use guidelines to empirically treat. However, if you have a strep test, why would you not use it, right? So, so the thing is, is that, you know, one, one way to use telehealth is I'm going to use it for the low hanging fruit and I'll bring everybody else into a medical facility. Right now, if we are going to extend this and say, look, this is the way I am going to get rid of disparities in care. It changes things, right? Because now all of a sudden I need everyone to be able to have a video conference experience, right? And there's only I mean that's and until I do that, I need the ability to do audio. Because right now, telehealth or video conferencing, and this is this is what's going to come out in this this paper, right? Is that video conferencing, it's actually like a segregated and segregated not just race, right? It's race, socioeconomics. I mean, imagine if we had a building where we said this is the waiting room, but only people that had money could could use an iPhone to enter the door, right? I mean, you had to be tech savvy and you had to have socioeconomics, right? Could enter. Well, that, that's a waiting room that would get, I mean, you know, the Twitter would just erupt furiously about, you know, this segregated waiting room, right? But that's what telehealth is, right? Which is that only certain people can enter the video conference because it's not ubiquitous. So we have a decision to make as a, as a country, right? Which is we, we, in my opinion, what we need to do is continue to offer audio only calls while we work towards making internet like, um, well, internet and tech literacy. That needs to be like the rural electric, right? So, you know, back in the day, we had the rural electric Mm -hmm. where everybody got electricity. I mean, Mm -hmm. and it turns out that we we talk about it for healthcare, but it's not just healthcare. Like my kids did tele-elementary school. Right. This is this is this is educating our kids.
0: It's a rapidly approaching problem this fall, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't <laughs> even want to go into that. Um, but, but, you know, it's it's our business
1: too, right? And so, if if this is how our country is going to survive, then if I could get behind any mass you know, mass program, right, it's we got to get internet out there, and it doesn't have to be. Yeah we got to get a hundred gigabyte pipe through, through the state, which is what people would have you believe. I mean, we got to get the, for people who can't access it, we need to get them access and it needs to be reasonable. I mean, arguably even 25 and three is pretty low. I mean, 50 megabytes though, you know, 50 megabytes per second. If we could get that to people and subsidize it for people that, that don't have access to it. I mean, that, that's really going to be the, that needs to be what our country does. But until then, we gotta, we gotta say what, what are we really going to use telehealth for? Um, and if we don't address it, and if we don't continue audio, I think what you're going to find pretty rapidly is that there's going to be, uh, it, you know, telehealth for me was always about solving disparities in care. But there were papers even about three and four years ago that that had this concern, which is if you do it in the home, it really has the ability to rapidly um, increase disparities in care. So, you know. I'm, I'm one of the biggest proponents of telehealth, period. I think so much to the point where people think that I never want to see patients in person, which is not true. Uh, I actually <laughs> prefer seeing patients in person. It was about giving patients options. But, um, R- but right. when, you, when you have this in front of you and, and it's so important to have internet uh, without driving disparities at a time where our country is so divided from a disparities point of view anyway, Right? right. I mean, this is right. not the time to shy away from getting everybody internet. And if there was one thing that I think our country should buy, you know, bond together, it's, it's getting internet and tech literacy out there.
0: Well, that's, I mean, it's a remarkable point. Uh, I, I, I think about, um, I heard this that, you know, if, if the idea for a public library was unknown up until last year or something. Nobody would fund it. Nobody would... You you, you think of the idea of a public library. And yeah. Probably z- almost zero politicians would be behind it nowadays, but thank God it's there now. I mean... So it sounds like this is something like running water, electricity in your home. How, I mean, we can't even imagine life in America without those things. No, I mean not at um, all. I mean, this is this is this has got to be a public health. No, this
1: issue. this is a public health issue, but it's it's more it's a public education issue. I mean, it's a Department of Commerce, and so you say, if it if it affects that much, right? I mean, why wasn't this passed a long time ago? And then when you look at some of the programs that have been used to fund it, right? I mean, so let's take the, you know, FCC has done a phenomenal job on funding rural. So we have done a lot to get funds out to rural areas, right? And when you look at those funds, uh, you know, first of all, the application for those funds is so complicated. So you have to pay somebody. Mm -hmm. But once again, Mm -hmm. if you had the money to pay somebody to do the consulting, right, you, you probably have the money for internet. So, you know, you know right. it's like the USDA grants, right. which is that some of these, you know, we we talk to some of these facilities and right now at UAB, you know, we, we put together the funds and the funds, the beneficiaries of these funds are, are in rural areas, but, you know, the exact funds that that they're supposed to be helping, we've made it so complicated to apply for those funds that the people who need it can't apply because if they had those resources, the grant writers and things like that, they just, you know... Uh, so some of these hospitals, right? I mean, I think it, the the figure is about seventy percent of rural hospitals in Alabama operating are operating in the red. You know, that's not the type of um, environment that you can go out and hire a grant writer to get you to get you extra funds, uh, which is sad. But that's you know, I think that's where that's where all this breaks apart. But let's talk about urban areas, right? So. In Alabama, we're a very rural state, but still only 25% of our population lives in a rural area. Uh, So people tend to congregate around the cities. And if you look Mm -hmm. at even places that are right next to the city, we have broadband in the city, but that doesn't make a bit of difference if your patient can't pay for it. So, you know, lots of people have access to cell towers, but their data, you know, specifically, you know, the Medicaid, charity care, self-pay, Patients, the way they buy data is not in unlimited data. What they do is they buy 400 megabytes of data, right? And so a video conference chews through that in no time. So you know, one of the things that that's interesting, and this is again how how regulated our everything is, right? So there's a big issue about paying patients, right? So and and that's that's bad. That's enticement right? You know, we get, you can't pay patients. So now all of a sudden I'm a healthcare system that realizes I have a patient that doesn't have internet and I want to facilitate their video visit, right? Now, if I facilitate that video visit, I have to give them a phone, right? And that phone has to have data on it, which apparently has been made, you know, Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 seems to have made some headway in saying that's okay. But Here's where where I take a little bit of issue with it because you know this is where the regulations really, I mean, I, I can understand why they're there, but you say we got to find a way around it, which is that now all of a sudden I as a healthcare system can apply for, for instance, some of these funds from the FCC to help this patient get healthcare, right? So, but, now here's the big but. I have to lock that phone down and the only thing they can use that phone for, even though internet is how we shop, how we educate our kids, and this patient has no internet, but the only thing I can use that phone for is for healthcare. So you know, where's the sense in that? And the sense in it is, I mean, the, the lawyers would say, well, now all of a sudden a health system can entice patients away with their fancy phones, right? And yes, that's a problem. But on the other hand, isn't it a problem that we have a device there to help a patient who has multiple facets of their life other than healthcare. And I've gone through the trouble of getting them a phone of procuring the funds right. for the data. Right. And now all of a sudden, yeah, you can't do anything. So, you know, forget your kids, forget whatever. I know you don't have internet and that's why you got to take this out of the healthcare space because healthcare is so regulated, we, we won't make headway this way. We need to make this you know, you know, problem number one, uh, which is we got to get internet to folks. And it needs to be in an unregulated way, um, which is just internet, not internet for healthcare, which is so limited that you say, you know, if we're t- looking at, you know, everybody's talking about patient reported outcomes, patient well-being. Well, I promise you, if we get internet to patients, their well-being will probably go up as long as, they're not on Twitter or Facebook uh, making nasty comments and getting a bunch of feedback back. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. That's a so. difference, different scenario. That's, a, that's, a, that's
0: a, probably a given, yeah. but yeah. Um,
1: no, but I mean, I, I think that this is a, this is, it's just, it, it's so important now. Um, but I do, I, I you know, people ask me about, you know, the next most common question I have from providers, what's the benchmark, right? How many patients should be doing this, right? And I, You know, the first, yeah. the first thing is that, I don't know. I mean, you know, for me, this was never about, I mean, if you ask me in, in the most perfect of settings, here's what we should be able to do is we should be able to, when a patient calls for an appointment, we should be able to say, how would you like to engage with your provider, right? Would you like to do it over phone? Would you like to do it over video? Would you like to come in person? And if, and the right amount of patients doing telehealth are just the amount that choose it, right? I mean, as long as it's medically reasonable to do it, right, I wouldn't do it for acute abdominal pain, but for a chronic visit, right? you know, now that what we've shown, you know, the benchmark for what, te- what, who should do telehealth or how many people should just be, I offer everybody every visit, and I don't care how they engage with me. I'm going to engage with them on whatever terms they want, and that will make the healthcare in the United States better.
0: Because otherwise you're just forcing them to, to make a long trip or do something. That's right. You're making, you're dictating their life. And that's not, no, I, mean, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I don't think most physicians probably feel comfortable. Well,
1: no, I, I mean, like you know, I, I agree. Not only do I, I not, I don't, I don't think it's right. And I think what's, what's probably happening is those patients are now, they're, those patients are choosing to either forego care altogether. Right. Right. You know, for instance, I, I will give my own example. Which is that I have I have constant migraines and uh, during COVID uh, shockingly my migraine uh, went way up um, and, and these are true in migraine not just stress <laughs> headaches so so anyway but you know I as a, a medical provider always never had time to go to the doctor so I never went um, and honestly so you know I realized I needed to get some help so I had a neurology appointment I had it over telehealth. I did it in 30 minutes. I had a meeting before and after. And at the end of it, all I could remember was being angry. And I was angry because I knew we had this option the whole time. And here I was paying premiums to an insurance company. And because of my life working, I was basically paying premiums and never taking advantage because I didn't have telehealth, right? but they were able Amen. to answer my questions, do the full, full exam. And now all of a sudden I had access and this is, you know, this access to care issue. We seem to think that it's something socioeconomic, but there's access to care issues. And probably one of the biggest people that have problems with access to care are physicians and they're physicians that put things yeah. off because they can't find time. They can't find time. And now what do we have? We have giant problems with physicians who would probably have done better if they had time to see a psychiatrist, right? But but yeah. you know, one of the things that I kind of laugh about is, you know, the most HIPAA the least HIPAA compliant uh, place in the whole world is the physician waiting room. Because nobody wants to be seen in the waiting room of, of psychiatry or the STD clinic, right? I mean just by right. being seen in right. the waiting room, it's all of a sudden an assumed, right? But now all of a sudden, if I have the ability as a physician who's having trouble grappling with, for instance, COVID, right, and how now I have to come home after seeing COVID and worry if I've given it to my kids or my parents, right, but now with with this, now all of a sudden I have access. And for, for an insurer to even threaten that that potential might go away, right, I mean, it's really just a slap in the face when... You know, you know, we've we've opened up access to care, and not just for rural, not just for, and but for people who work all the time, right? And that's that's who pays premiums, and that's precisely the people that are putting stuff off, like breast exams, and you know, all these things, these preventative health visits, getting their cholesterol checked, because you just don't have time until you have the heart attack,
0: right? Right, right. And if they if they are truly about preventative care and saving saving money. That's right. Is that, you
1: know, this is the intervention that we need and we need to shift things. You know, what I'd love to say at some point is that, um, is we should have the data. And unfortunately there's so many confounders now with COVID. Right. Um, but it would be Mm -hmm. great to say at some point, look at all the patients who had had a telehealth visit, right. And let's see before and after how many visits did they have. And the first thing that my hope is is that they had more visits, Right. right. Number one. Insurers aren't really going to like the more visit piece, but if we can then say, look, they had more visits and because of those more visits, they had less like, they were less likely to go in the hospital for a non COVID that's, you got to exclude COVID cause it's the biggest confounder period. Um, uh, and unfortunately people don't want to go to the hospital. They're not even going to ERs for renal failure or, or anything else. So there's, there's so many confounders, but you gotta, we gotta start. Hopefully we believe that doctors, um, Can actually change healthcare outcomes and aren't just reactionary.
0: Right, right. That is the core of it. If you give us a chance, whether it be over the internet or face to face, we gotta we can prove our worth. I'm certain of it. Well, wow, what a treat! Thank you, Dr. Wallace. This has been uh, this is far more enlightening than I could have imagined. So, to the listeners out there, uh, you know. Stay tuned, because uh, it sounds like he's uh, he's got the pen to paper and and ready to publish some things. Well, again, thank you, thank you, Dr. Wallace, for for coming on and, and sharing. And uh, best of luck with with everything, COVID or not, and and child care or, <laughs> at home oh. or not. <laughs> oh, I
1: know. Uh, I think I think I think our entire country needs a lot of luck right now.
0: That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and uh, until next time. All right. Have a great day. Thanks.